Hi, welcome to Out of the Box Stories. My name is Allison Paradise, and I'm your host. Our guest this week is Star Scott, Green Labs Program Coordinator at the University of Georgia in Athens. Our conversation took place in June, just after the My Green Labs Summit, where Star joined me from her home in Athens, Georgia. We hadn't seen each other in over a year, and it was such a breath of fresh air to see her face and to hear her insights into her experience of the world. In the first part of this interview, we discuss Star's pioneering role in bringing diversity, equity, and inclusion to laboratory sustainability. In fact, her work is so thoroughly groundbreaking, so completely out of the box, that you may not have heard of it before. It will be clear from the first part of the interview that Star sees the world differently and understands the world maybe a little bit differently than some of us. In the second part of our conversation, Star shares her connection to music. You'll get to hear her sing and share how music affects her and how she understands music affects us all. As I mentioned at one point during our conversation, I don't think I've ever known somebody whose name so perfectly fits them. Star is truly a radiant ball of light that shines down on everybody who meets her. It is an absolute gift to be able to share her light with you. Hi, Star. Hey, Allison. How are you? I'm well. Now that I see your face, how are you? Aw, the same. I'm so glad to see you. It's so good to see you. Thank you for being on this podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm loving your podcast so far, so I'm really excited to be here. You were one of the first people I thought of. I was like, oh my gosh, we have to talk to Star. Oh, that's so awesome. Thank you. Of course, and I know you don't know what we're going to be talking about, but it'll be obvious why you're a perfect fit for this podcast in a little bit. Okay, I'm a little excited and a little apprehensive. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to start, we'll make it really easy. Would you mind sharing with people how we know each other and your involvement in the Green Labs movement? Sure. I am the Green Labs program manager at the University of Georgia. And we know each other for a million years now, it feels like, (laughs) through my Green Lab and I2SL. And then, of course, we became friends. And so now we have that piece, too. So um, it's really cool how that happened, how energy attracts energy. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I met you at the first I2SL conference. You came up to me after a talk, and you just have this radiant energy. You just glow. It's, it's unbelievable. And then you'd asked at some point to take a photo, and I thought, why in the world would you want a photo of me when you are glowing? <laughs> amazing ball of energy (laughs) well likewise and actually we you know we still have those photos and we've taken similar photos over the years yeah I wanted your photo because you were doing something really bold and unique and atypical and um that's you know those are the people I'm drawn to never knew that yeah (laughs) yeah yeah girl I thought you were a rock star I was like let me get in on that (laughs) 
Well, that's how I feel about you. Will you share a bit about the work that you've been doing at UGA? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks. So definitely doing green labs. So looking at conservation of resources, energy and water and trying to divert as much waste um, in our research labs as possible, but also looking at equity within the research enterprise and how our waste streams and how our supply chains impact not just communities right outside of the institution, but communities really far away, like around the, around the world. And it's so interesting how this, you know, I pulled a string and the sweater keeps unraveling. And so that's, you know, that's a lot of the work that we're doing. So we're trying to, it's become a lot more comprehensive than where we started. It's just really amazing work. If we can minimize the harm that we are contributing to while we're doing our research. To me, this is incredibly bold because you've been speaking about this for, oh, I don't know, at least four years, right? Yeah. Maybe longer. Long before people were talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? long before we were speaking about any of that, you were standing up on stage saying, hey, everyone, there's an issue with the supply chain. And that, I mean, that takes a tremendous amount of courage. Thank you. That's so nice of you to say. Thanks. That, you know, that work is, um, it's funny because some of the, the parts of me that I think were challenging to bring into the lab, which were these kind of emotional intelligent parts of me or my heart, basically, that wasn't, I don't know, there wasn't really a place for that for me. But it's so interesting because there's lots of room for those parts of me in this work. And in fact, it's, it's kind of required, you know, it's heavy work. If you want to know how you're impacting communities or other people around the world, and then you find out the answer to that, well, then you got to live with what you find out. So it, it takes, you know, you got to have space to hold that is what I'm trying to say. You got to have the, I think the emotional capacity to hold that. So you're the perfect person then to be doing this work. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I definitely don't feel like the perfect person, but I do feel like I am committed to doing it. It feels right, for sure. How is that in the context of where you are? Because I I have to imagine that being in Georgia, it's maybe not at the topmost of people's minds. So how are you able to make any progress in that space? Um, definitely tenacity, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's interesting because I, I work for a 200-year-old institution and legacy and tradition are at the heart of so much of what we do. And that is really valuable. You know, those are two really valuable things. But also, it is a challenging culture at times to have conversations about what we need to do differently. And I think that that's probably a challenging conversation to have anywhere in any culture, but it's not really, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Southern person and I, I love that. And I love my family and I love those things. I'm a Georgia peach, if you will, but kind of talking about what we didn't get right is not necessarily at the forefront of our culture. And so um, having those conversations, we have to talk about painful histories. We have to. Mm -hmm. 
Do you remember the story, The Princess and the Pea? Yes. Where, yeah, the girl had the pea under her mattress and they just kept putting mattresses on top <laughs> and you can always feel the pea. We've got to just move the mattresses and take the pea out, right? You know, you got to do that. And I think the same is true in this culture of trying to kind of push for change. If we talk about sustainability as related to like environmental or kind of that profit or the fiscal piece, Mm -hmm. we're really quick to acknowledge what we didn't do right and what needs to shift. So if we know that this building was wired back in 1960, it met code at the time, but it no longer meets code. It no longer is the best, you know, way to wire this building. And so we go in and we say, oh, this needs fixing and we rewire it and make it more efficient. But when it comes to the equity piece, when it comes to the social piece of sustainability, it's very difficult in many cultures for people to say, we hurt someone. Mm -hmm. We hurt a community. And now we got to go back and fix that. And we spend a lot of energy as a nation. We spend a lot of energy not admitting that. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we would just say, wow, you know, The same thing like the building from the 60s. You know, wow, we had this practice that we now realize is not the best practice for today. Let's go in and fix it. But the first thing we have to do is identify what's not working. I think that that's at the foundation, right? Is just being willing to sit with it and say, man, we did that. And you know what? That wasn't wasn't the right thing to do. But now we know better and we're just going to do our best to fix it. And that's all we can do. But um, we can't keep putting energy as a nation, you know, or a planet. We can't keep putting energy into the cover-ups, into brushing things under the rug or putting more mattresses on the bed, you know. Isn't that what we do often as individuals when something doesn't feel right? Totally. Totally. And you know how much it, it becomes powerful. It takes on a life of its own. I had a friend who recently said that he was kind of having a moment of rage trying to find his way through this building on campus that was um, that it was designed where you actually have to go down a floor to like access this whole other part of the building and that he was like kind of pouting and he pushed open one of the doors real loud and he said that this whole group of people just had this kind of shock at what he was doing and he said he immediately like ran down the stairs to leave and then he was like, oh, I can't do that. And so he went back up to them and said, sorry if I, the noise that I created, you know, was disturbing. And he said, I'm just so frustrated. I can't find my way through this building. And as soon as he said that, everyone started laughing. And they said, oh man, we see this every day. This happens with the design of this building. And like, don't worry, it's okay. And he was telling me, you know, it melted away at that point. And his shame of having like pushed open the doors in frustration, you know, that was no longer a thing. And the reason it was no longer a thing was because he was able to actually be direct about it and go back and just say, man, this happened. And as soon as he did, it started melting away. If we could do that more as individuals, I wonder how that would change then how we respond as institutions and how we respond as a nation to things like this. That's right. And that's what you told me. You said that in the things you're trying to do, that you have failed at some things. You've made some mistakes recently. And that's information for how you're going to set it up on your next step. 
but also that's building your resilience and you have more tenacity than most folks I know. So, I mean, that's, it's so powerful, right? It's just, uh, we don't need to be perfect. We really just need to be resilient. Mm -hmm. I don't know one perfect person. Oh no. How would that even happen? It would be so boring. <laughs> be so boring. When I'm around somebody that doesn't get bummed out by their imperfections, it becomes very permission giving for me to just relax into myself. Would you be able to give an example of maybe one of the projects you're working on or something that you've discovered in this space of equity? Sure. Yeah, of course. Well, one of the ones, and we've been talking about it for a few years now, is, you know, nitrile gloves that we have in our labs that are in all hospitals that our healthcare workers have used millions of, probably billions of during the pandemic and before. And, you know, we have them in our homes now. These gloves, they seem so affordable and they're critical PPE. You know, we need them. But also they're created for the most part in Malaysia using forced labor. And migrant workers come from Myanmar and surrounding countries and they pay up to 5,000 US dollars for the opportunity to work in one of these glove factories. And why? Because they want to send money back home to their families. This is their, this is their opportunity to create abundance, to create wealth. And so they go to work in these factories. It takes them, you know, years to work off that initial debt. And they have no idea what they're getting themselves into. And what happens is that their passports are taken and they're forced to live in a dorm on site, which is overcrowded. They work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. They get one day off a month. They're not allowed to leave the factory. They're not allowed to see a doctor outside of the factory. And these are the gloves that are coming into the U.S. So two-thirds of these gloves are coming into the U.S. We are the number one consumer of gloves in, on the planet, followed by Europe. So they arrive here, right? And we think, man, we've got these really cheap gloves, and it's so great that we've got these to protect ourselves. And, you know, I think at UGA we're paying about 28 cents per pair of gloves now. Pre-pandemic, it was around 14 cents per pair of gloves it doesn't even begin to reflect the true cost that's going into these gloves. The true cost is the burden of these communities, of these people halfway around the world who are suffering, who are being treated unfairly, who are basically being enslaved to create this product. So when you tell our researchers, well, this is what's going on, they're appalled. Everyone's appalled. And we think that there's some overarching organization who's making sure this isn't happening. It doesn't exist, you know. So at UGA, what we're doing is we have been on the hunt for to create a safe list. So gloves that we know are not created under these conditions. And that's really hard when you think that three out of every five pair of gloves created is being created under these conditions. So what we're trying to do is we're working with our procurement team to create a list. Well, first of all, establish criteria that we can use 
to be objective about this. And then we're creating a list so our researchers will have options and know, okay, well, at least these companies that we're identifying are safe. And at least we know that we're not driving harm and suffering in this way. So that's that's one of the projects. And this actually wow. extends. So through the Landfill Diversion Working Group with I2SL, we are working on the nitroglove call to action right now. That's going to look at all pieces, not just this labor component, which is huge, but also what fuel is used in creating nitrile gloves, which, spoiler, is often palm oil, which if you know anything about conflict palm oil, you know it's driving destruction of the planet. And then also where the raw materials are coming from. You know, you don't see a lot of nitrile factories in the U.S. And the reason for that is because the, the runoff from that, like the wastewater runoff, is more damaging than battery factories. And so, you know, this has, does, has, we haven't even begun to touch what environmental destruction is happening from the creation of these products. And then, you know, they come into our facilities and then they leave our facilities and where are they going? So we got to look at kind of end of life scenarios there as well. So that's just one example of what we're trying to do. And think of how many consumables we have in the labs. Think of how many research supplies there are. Of course, we're interested in, in laboratories um, and what's happening within those spaces, but this isn't limited to labs. This is literally your Starbucks cup, your McDonald's straw, your sneakers, your anything it all has this huge story behind it. And that story probably indicates who was impacted by the creation of that item. So we really need to strive for that supply chain transparency, not just like a middle, like a middleman. It's like 30 middlemen. So we have these like long, multi-tiered, opaque supply chains, and we have no idea what's coming from where. I need a minute to sort of process how much it is that you hold. (laughs) in order to do this work. Because this isn't something that just anybody can do. Because you are, each piece of this is so heavy. It's really heavy. You know, when I started this work was with Christina Grieber, who's now with my Green Lab, and she was at CU Boulder at the time. And there were definitely moments where we just kind of sat on Zoom together, looking at each other, being like, oh my God, this is, is this right? You know, and then kind of going back and thinking like, maybe we should check these sources again. Maybe we should, you know, do another search. And it was really difficult to sit with. I mean, it's an emotional work. I will say this though. I do think that anybody has the capacity to do this. That would be like my hope for our research enterprise is that, you know, we are known throughout history as our cognitive intelligence forward and we're the brainiacs of the world. But in reality, that alone doesn't serve us. It has to be paired with that emotional intelligence. And when we put those two together, then we have a really powerful platform to work from. And so I think also a lot of our scientists, maybe we're never given the opportunity to bring their emotional intelligence into what they were doing. Labs that I worked in, it was never explicitly stated, but you kind of got kudos for being more cynical because it made your 
experimental design more dependable. Mm -hmm. Being a cynic kind of made you better Mm -hmm. at figuring out where the, you know, where the weak points were. Yeah. And so as scientists, we've all kind of been cultivated in that way to check our emotions at the door and come on in and do your reproducible, you know, rigorous science. And that's great. We do need that. But we also need heart. Our hearts need to go into that space with us. I think anyone who is a PI or anyone who's a researcher, they absolutely have the capacity to do these things if they let themselves. I'd like to follow that thread a bit deeper, that heart thread, because there is in you, it seems, this almost endless, limitless capacity. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about your work before the lab, before you became a researcher. Well, um, I think that you're getting at music. Is that where we're going? That's where we're going. Um, Yeah, so it was actually after I left the bench. Um, While I was at the bench, I was pursuing music. I live in a college, you know, obviously I live in a college town, but it's a music town. We're very well known for our music in Athens, Georgia. Yeah, so while I was working in the lab, I was also a musician. And then when I left the bench was when I really kind of doubled down on music and I had an um, eight-piece funk band. And, you know, we were, we were doing all right. We were sponsored by Firefly Vodka. And we mixed our CD at CeeLo Green Studio in Atlanta. And David Hale designed our album. And lots of great stuff happening. I mean, that music is absolutely a way to reach people. Like, that's definitely the heart. When I think of the heart side of me, I think of that space for sure and also using your voice you know I mean literally but also having some something to share and just hoping that like it means something to someone hoping it might touch someone is that how you created the music then it's interesting like so many of the songs so the band we were originally called Circe and then it became Circe Vision, but the band was myself and my best friend, who is a phenomenal drummer. And um, so she and I started writing the songs. I was kind of the heart and voice of the songs, and she was definitely the rhythm and structure of the songs. What did you ask me? <laughs> I asked you. <laughs> I asked you if that feeling like you had something to say was what was driving the creation of those songs. And where did, where did that come from? Because you could, right, I mean, you could sing in the shower, but you were driven to do something much bigger than that. So where did that come from? It's interesting. So many songs on, on the album are really about hope. I think some of it came out of inspiration, of wanting to share something, a beautiful thought or feeling. But I think a lot of it came out of desperation of seeing things in the world that I couldn't impact, that I couldn't help. And it's funny, I look back and listen to some of those lyrics and I feel like they were letters I wrote to myself, kind of, you know, like, um, 
like on that album, you know, a lot of the songs are about death, honestly. And, you know, some of the lyrics are, um, you know, it all comes back to you. Please don't be afraid. And it's so funny because when I hear those songs and I sing those songs, my central nervous system settles. You know, it comes, it's, it's self-soothing. My mom talks about uh, when my brother was a kid in the crib that she knew that he was awake because he would wake up and he'd be alone and he'd start crying, you know, like most babies do. Mm -hmm. Come get me. And she said, we would know that you were awake because we'd hear you in there just singing. And I was perfectly content just to sit in there and sing. (laughs) That does not surprise me at all. It's so, so unbelievably obvious watching you sing that it's just you it's just pure you the first time I saw you I think I sent you a video I couldn't even speak it's just I can't even I see I can't even I'm useless right now (laughs) useless in the face of your of of you of just the the pure essence of you Thank you. You know I feel the same about you. Really, that means a lot. Yeah, I saved that video that you sent me. I will I will always save that video you sent me. Just because it was like you got it. Isn't that really what we want? We just want someone to be like, oh, I see what you're doing. <laughs> it's literally all we want. And, and it, you know, it's challenging, I think, too, for like, those of us who are seeing the reality of the planet and we're like, Hey, look, everybody, the house is on fire. Let's do something. Hurry. And then everyone's like, well, I've got to take little Bobby to school. I've got to do this and that. And you're like, yeah, but the house is on fire. Everybody come on. But like, ultimately, like we just want people to be like, yeah, I get that. I feel that. Yes. Yeah. All we're trying to do is share our perspective. And it's yeah. very difficult in this world of constant noise, I think, for that to be heard. And you, both in your music and in your work now, have a way of making your voice rise above that noise in such a, just such a powerful way. Wow. Thank you. That means a lot. I know that we in the Green Labs community know your story, but I think at some point you're going to have to put your story out there too because the reality is that when, I don't know, like when you're doing these big moves and you are envisioning these things, I feel like a lot of people are like, don't get it. And so they're like, that's outrageous. How could that possibly happen? And then it's like, oh yeah, well, guess what? She created the largest... Green Labs nonprofit in the world. So, um, you know, it's like, I, I feel like that, well, I told you this before, but I definitely think that you don't have to be in a suit and tie. You don't have to be Caucasian and you don't have to be male and you don't have to be typical. You don't have to conform to um, these kind of ideas of professionalism that have been laid out before us. And 
Uh, you've proven that over and over and over again. But, but yours is vision-driven. Yeah, it comes from a... But I think it comes from the same place, that the inspiration for music and the inspiration for an idea to create a movement is the same. It's from the same well. You know, it just flows through differently. Yeah. It's the same creative energy. Yeah, it definitely is. It's funny, like when, you know, singing is, singing, have you ever sang in a made-up language? No, but can we do that now? I would strongly recommend, yes, we can do that. And also I would recommend that you sing in a made-up language for yourself. It's really interesting. So, you know, the Sikhs, they've identified a whole bunch of points. I, I don't want to misquote it, but it's like 200 points in the face that when you sing different things, you are activating these different meridians in the face. And that's part of why they, their practice is so deeply embedded in chanting. And so this, there's a configuration of movements that happens that not only activates these meridians, but it sends direct messages to your central nervous system. And they've done studies looking at this and looking at hormone release that happens during this. But there is something that is happening that we are driving. It is a physical change that we are putting into the body when we are driving this. And the reason I say to use a made-up language when you try this is because then you don't have to think about, like, are my words stupid? What is this song about? You know, you kind of get past that and you can get more into the emotional side of things. Could you do it? Would you mind? Sure. All right. Well, I'll, I'll sing a little bit of um, a Sikh Bani, which is like a 3,000-year-old prayer. I'll just give you kind of an example of the, the facial movements and sounds, and then I'll do a fun made-up one for you. Okay. All right. Here's, let's see. Let me take a little sip of water. Wahi guru raga sane hala jata so purik ekanka sekuru parasai so purik nirinjan ha purik nirinjan ha agama gamma para saptia vihe saptia vihe churiji har sache sirjan hara sabaji tumare ji tumji akatatara. All right, so that's just a little bit of a, a Sikh prayer. Um, it goes on your, you know, it goes on and on, but let me sing in a made up language just about your face. Let me look at your face. (laughs) So she, while No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
I feel that all through here, which people can't see, is all in my chest. My eyes are teared up. Star, like, where did you come from? <laughs> Let me tell you where I came from. Also, it tells you a lot about how sensitive I am. When I was growing up, I was obsessed with stuffed animals. I loved them all. They all had personalities. But my mom or my brother would wake me up every morning. And they would wake me up by making my stuffed animals sing and dance. (laughs) (laughs) I'd do like little songs. And my brother, he would always like hide at the end of the bed and hold the stuffed animals up where they'd be singing and dancing. So it looked like they had just come to life and were doing it themselves. And it'd always be like, you know, some wake up song that somebody was making up about, I don't know, know, come down for breakfast or something. I don't know. But yeah, that's like, honestly, I've been trying to get back there my whole life. (laughs) But you just got there. Honestly, I feel still. And we're over, we're over Zoom. We're not even, you're on the opposite side of the country. And what you just did touched everything in me. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, try it later. Just look at something, just look at anything, and then sing a made-up song about it with a made-up language. Okay. Yeah, and the great part about it is that no one can tell you it's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) There's one more question I want to ask you, and that's about your experience as as someone who listens to music. Because I know that you go to a lot of festivals and you hear a lot of musicians, and you've described some experiences to me that are not at all unlike what I've described you just did to me. <laughs> so, but I think you'd be able to articulate it a lot better than I can. Would you mind sharing what happens to you when you hear music? That's such a great question. Thank you. It's interesting. I did not expect any of these questions in this call. So really, it's nice. It's nice to get into this part of, part of us. Um, yeah, so it definitely is vibrational for sure. I mean, a physical, vibrational, energetic, our bodies are equipped to detect these external vibrations. Our bodies have the capacity to detect and respond to these things external to us. And just because we have desensitized ourselves over, you know, the last few thousand years to these things and being stuck in our our phones, our bodies still respond, even if our minds are so busy. When I'm in that space with live music, the first thing that happens is um, it kind of sneaks up on me, like like a sneaky friend about to do you a favor. <laughs> so while I'm still standing there, like thinking, oh God, I didn't get this done. I'm not sure how people you know, took me in that meeting. Like, did I represent myself the way I wanted to? Um, You know, all these 
anxious thoughts that are still in my mind and they're still dancing around. And then at some point, my body's like, "Mm, we're just going to release some happy hormones that are coming from these, you know, vibrations is coming (laughs) from these sounds. And then all of a sudden my mind gets, uh, starts to clear out. And it just depends on how stressed I am, right? It depends on how busy I am. But at some point it starts to, my mind starts, I get take off my mind, put my mind down, and then I can just be present. And I like to close my eyes and just let my body move however it needs or wants to. And then I just breathe and I just go with it. And it is amazing to me what comes up. I mean, I have... I've been dancing and just spontaneously been sobbing. You know, that's that was my first show back after COVID when I finally got in front of live music again. And those vibrations started in me. And it was it's really like it's just clearing out clogged energy. It's really clearing out these channels that haven't been moving properly. You know, I think about it like our lymphatic systems. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that like there's an energetic system in there that also has to keep moving. We've got to keep moving that energy. And that's what live music does for me, you know, and I'll, I'll, at that point I cried it out and it was crazy. I thought of things from two years ago that I had forgotten about consciously. And it was like my subconscious just purged, you know, just purged it all. And then at the end of that, there was nothing else left to cry about, and I just laughed. And it was really interesting, too, because in that case, there was a guy standing next to me who I didn't know. And I could tell he was, like, kind of peripherally watching me and aware that I was going through this. He didn't interrupt me. He didn't try to comfort me or save me or intervene in any way. And then after I finished and I was just, like, smiling again, and, of course, my face was all wet from crying, and... He just patted me on the back and he was like, did you work it out? I said, yeah, I worked it out. And he gave me a big hug and he said, I saw you. Good job. And I just think, man, maybe so many people come to music for that, you know, just to lay your worries at the at the feet of the beloved and just let it go. It's I don't want to say anything. I just want to listen to you talk. <laughs> Could I just not speak for a while now? Because I have never known someone whose name so fits them the way that yours does. Your parents just knew. You are. You are the brightest star. Thank you. That's so sweet. It's the truth. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you saying that, you know, honestly, and I wonder if you ever feel this way because you have a really atypical approach to things, but a lot of times because I am the odd, oddball, the odd person out on how I'm seeing a situation or how I'm want to approach or respond to a situation. If you don't have people around you who are like, yeah, I get that. At some point, you can get in your own head about it, and you can think like, man, am I just like a weirdo who nobody gets? And so then you have a moment like this one that feels so lovely and grounding, and I'm so grateful for it. Thank you. Um, But it is really important if we have people in our lives that 
you know, maybe do things a little differently. Like we don't necessarily have to understand how they're doing it, you know, but we can also Mm -hmm. kind of just encourage them and, and make sure that they still feel like part of the fold, you know, that they're part of the team. Yeah, that's very well said. And you're absolutely right about that. I don't think I've ever felt my whole life that I fit into anything. And it can be really isolating. And then I see somebody like you who just does these, what feels like magic with your voice whether it's through singing or through your words. And, and I don't feel so alone. It's the, we're not even working in the same space anymore, but it doesn't matter because it's like that beauty exists and it's flourishing. And okay, there's space for that then. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that is one, one thing about our community is the first time I went to uh, the International Institute for Sustainable Laboratories conference, mm-hmm. I felt like I wasn't the oddball. You know, I felt like, man, here's my people. Mm-hmm. And then, and and that was one thing too about you know Phil. And uh, there was never a moment where I was like, Phil, I want to do X, Y, Z that he didn't say, cool, what resources do you need? Yeah. Or cool, how, how can I elevate that? And I know everybody is missing him, so I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not claiming anything, I guess, special in that way, but I really do miss him. I really do miss him because I think a lot of times, you know, if you're at an institution where it takes a lot of, um, effort or time for people to understand what it is you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. You start kind of thinking that that's the norm, where they're at is the norm, and where you're at is somewhere different. Yeah. Instead of thinking, no, this is forward thinking. This is where we're headed. You know, this is the vision of what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, we all know that visions take time. You know, to mature and to gestate and. Um, but Phil was always, I would have a, a challenging time here and I would talk with him and he would be like, cool, what are we doing? You know, when, when, when Kelly Weisinger and I did the, um, plenary last year, which we said, we want to look at justice. We want to bring a, a justice panel and bring these folks to talk to our, our community we want to talk about how justice and equity, um, what that looks like within the lab sphere and the, the built environment and, you know, Green Labs community. He said, that's great. What do you need from me? <laughs> and like, we're like, no, we're good. And, you know, we checked in a couple times along the way, but he just straight up trusted us. Mm-hmm. He like believed in what we were doing and he knew that we were going to deliver and afterwards, I asked him, I was like, are you happy about that? And he said, I'm thrilled, but I knew I was going to be. <laughs> you know? And it's like, man, having somebody like that, you know, like you or, or like Phil or any of our colleagues and, and friends and peers who get it and believe it and see it, man, that just gives us so much more belief in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Now we have to do that for ourselves because... 
still can't do it for us, but he showed us how. He showed us how. That's right. That's right. I think Adam said at his funeral, his son said at his funeral, um, my dad wasn't the smartest guy in the room, but he definitely knew who was the smartest person in the room. <laughs> and he had them on a team working, yes. you know, working in a working group. I love that. And I think that's so true. Mm-hmm. He knew how to take himself out of it. And that's, that's the art of creating that space for people is taking your ego and putting it aside and holding space for people to create what's in them to be created. Yeah. Yeah. That's to me still like an enigma, like how ego intersects with creation. Mm -hmm. That to me is still like a real big mystery. I saw his holiness, the Dalai Lama speak um, up at Emory a few years ago and probably a decade ago, actually. And someone asked him, what is the role of the ego in artistry, in, in creativity? And I thought for sure he was going to say there's no place for ego. And instead he said, oh, it's very important. It's very, very important because if you don't believe in yourself, no one else ever can. Mm-hmm. And um, that always like kind of struck me because... That's like the perpetual kind of um, challenge, right? Is how to lead without ego, how to create without ego, how to have that space and non-judgment for other people to feel safe enough to contribute, Mm -hmm. you know, what they have in them that you don't have. Yeah. It's, It's such a mystery to me and I, and I hope I keep it in check. You know, I hope I do. I always want to be like the teacher. Or the learner, right? The one yeah. who's always yeah. has an open mind and knows that there's so many things that that you don't know. Exactly. That's how I feel. The more I learn, the more I realize I know nothing. Exactly. Exactly. It's so true. And also not claiming any sort of... um expert knowledge either because there's always someone who knows more than us yeah to me the minute you think you're an expert you just there's nothing more that can come in you're closed off yeah it's over it's over it's over it's yeah there's nowhere to go from there the other thing too is that um that's kind of right up there with perfectionism yeah back to perfectionism but you can't take any chances. You can't do anything risky or bold or novel in that space right. and not drive yourself completely crazy in the process. If you want to do something novel, you're probably going to have a geodesic dome that you're trying to get going 24 hours before your opening, your opening show. <laughs> For folks who are listening who don't know about that, uh, Allison has a lot of really cool projects she should be talking about as well. <laughs> Thank you. Probably, though, not on this podcast. This is about, <laughs> about you. It's a really good question, that that space of ego, because there's the... There's trusting yourself, right? There's knowing your intuition and knowing to trust yourself. And that is the compass. And it seems like that's the main place where 
where it belongs. Because without that, without that, everything somebody says to you is going to move you, right? Every person who says that'll never work is going to move you in the direction of, oh, no, I can't do this. And every person who says, oh, that's a great idea, you're going to go, oh, it's a great idea, right? And you'll just be constantly swayed back and forth. That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, back to music, it's very easy for me to create when there's no expectation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But as soon as there's an expectation on that, I got nothing. You know, it's just insurmountable. Um, Even like when we were tracking in the studio, most of the engineers we worked with would trick me. They would trick me by saying like, okay, let's just get some levels set. Why don't you just, you know, do a practice run? Then they'd record it. And then they'd say, okay, do a real run. And I all of a sudden had an expectation of like, I hope people like this, Mm. you know, that kind of thing. And so it's really like, yeah, you're right. It has to come from the gut. It has to come from intuition, has to come from feeling and self-trust. And that's part of why it's so important too, to like make sure that uh, that we're not hiding our Mm -hmm. failures, that we're not hiding our faults. Mm -hmm. Um, Because then you start creating a community in which your failures just feedback and you're still able to cultivate that intuition. You're still able to like cultivate that trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louise Hay, who was like the founder of Hay House, she tells a story about when her girls were little that they, you know, we as a society, we train out the instinct. We train out that gut intuition pretty early on in our children. And, you know, by saying, say hello, honey, mm-hmm. be polite. Did you do all the things we trained you to do? And in reality, uh, you know, she said those are some of the ways that are well-meaning ways that we accidentally kind of train out um, our kids' intuition. And she said that she had a rule with her children, which was uh, if they were uncomfortable in any scenario, that they could just whisper that to her and that they would immediately leave. And they didn't have to have the language. They didn't have to have the justification or the defense or the why. Mm-hmm. All they had to identify was that they didn't feel comfortable. And she would remove her children from that environment. And what she created were healthy adults with very intact intuition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, I think that's... um you know, we learn in science, like, you better be able to defend what you're about to say, mm-hmm. or else don't even say it. And intuition's kind of the opposite of that. It's kind of like being willing to say, I'm not sure why, but this is how I feel, and this mm-hmm. is what I'm going to do. And, I, you know, I'm not saying, like, don't use logic as well, but getting in touch with that intuition is so important. It's so important. Mm -hmm. And like, we have to be clear on it too, because otherwise we then think, you know, if we're not clear with it, we can mistake fear for intuition. Yep. And then that just shuts us down. Mm -hmm. We often mistake not only fear, but all sorts of emotions for intuition or misinterpret what that feeling is because we're so, we're so disconnected from it. That's right. Yeah, my elder uh, says, 
when you feel fear, choose curiosity. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting how the second you get back in that part of your brain that's curious, that wants to like define it and look at it, fear falls, falls to the side. Star, I, I feel like we could talk about this for, for hours. And, yeah. <laughs> and maybe this is part one of a two-part series. That's awesome. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have talked about this for hours. Every time we get in a conversation, I feel like we work out a lot of a lot of stuff, which is really awesome. And I'm, I don't know, I'm really excited. Thanks for, you know, putting this together and having me on the podcast. And I'm excited to see what other people think about some of these thoughts. And, um, and maybe... Maybe the hope there is that there's someone out there who wants to do something a little out of the ordinary or take a route that's atypical. And then maybe they hear this and they think, oh, I should just do that. And whoever that person is, you should also reach out to us because we're, yes. we're rooting for you. You read my mind. That's what I was thinking during one of the times when you were speaking. I was thinking, oh, I hope somebody's listening to this and thinks, I can do that now. And they reach out to you or to me, of course, either one of us. That would be, that would be the best possible outcome. That's so awesome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing the beauty that is you. Oh, thank you, girl. You know, I love you. I'm excited to be here with you. And honestly, like any project you're into, I totally believe in and I'm excited to see where it goes. Thank you. I feel the same about you. So, okay, part one. To be continued. (laughs) That sounds great. Love you. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. To close out this episode, I thought you might like to hear Star singing on her album. This track is called Distant Star. To that inner soul